Blog Talk Radio. As of the 1st of October 2019, in South Australia, a new law was passed that allows a public servant to enter, remain, inspect, or use reasonable force to break into any premise, place, vehicle or vessel. This public servant can remove items from the premises to be used as evidence in future, and a warrant is not required if there is a suspicion, just a suspicion, that a vulnerable adult is at risk of abuse. Matters will then be directed to a court or tribunal that is not bound by the rules of evidence, can determine matters as it thinks fit, and can reach an outcome, just, on the balance of probabilities, not beyond, reasonable doubt. Victims often, end up a ward of state. The public guardian and public trustee, are often placed, as the ultimate decision maker, and, take over all affairs. These laws are expected to be rolled out in other states next year. Are you scared yet? Good evening, everyone. This is Marty Oakley, the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the DS Radio Network. Good evening, everyone. This is Kai. And that was our beautiful Marty's voice. We were always going to honor Marty. For those who don't know, Marty unexpectedly passed away April 1st of this year. She left us a foundation that myself and Reverend Ralph, as as well as Marcel Reed and Marcia Joyner, are going to build upon as we continue her advocacy and just pave the way to stop the crimes against humanity. We are so excited tonight. This is a big show. Thank you so many people for tuning in. We have a retired New York Police Department detective, Vic Fiari. He is live with us. Say hello, Vic. Hey, Reverend Ralph and Cos. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I greatly appreciate it. We are so excited. So many people are wanting to ask questions, so we're going to have a call in towards the end of the show. We're going to do a few updates because we are moving and shaking. What we're doing is we're fighting abusive guardianships. These predators are preying upon our loved ones, our elderly and disabled, the most vulnerable people of our community. And I got this message about five minutes before the show came on. And there, the Philadelphia Inquirer is going to be doing a spotlight panel on June 1st. The person who is hosting it is Angela Kolumabas, who is the reporter who we reported on two weeks ago because there's that big civil lawsuit that's coming out about racketeering lawyers. There is, this is a statewide, so anyone in Pennsylvania, message me. I can get you the details. This is a really big deal. We will definitely post more about it and maybe next week really talk about it. So the panel is going to happen June 1st. We also are taking up Debbie Dahmer's call to action. We are going to start calling our Congress, and we're going to go Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. So we're going to do an equal equal opportunity. The first person that we're going to call, everyone grab your pencils because I'm going to give you the phone number. We're going to call Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania. And the reason why we have chosen Bob Casey of Pennsylvania is he is the head of the Senate Committee on Aging, and he is the one who held that hearing back in March, which someone from Montgomery County, our beautiful Tina Peone, was the 
sole speaker to represent the whole United States of America and talk about the abuses that are going on. And, of course, myself and Reverend Ralph, we experienced abuses in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania as well. So we are, we are going to all call, and we're all going to be nice, and we're going to thank him for holding the hearing, and we're going to tell him why we need to have more hearings in a timely manner. So this is your point to do it in like five minutes. You don't want to go on and on because these are going to be staffers that are answering the phones and you're going to let them know why you appreciate the hearings and why we need to continue investigating this crimes against humanity. I did do a little research. If you are out of the country, if you have a loved one that resides in the United States of America, you are welcome to call the Congressional Switchboard as well as if you believe a crime is occurring on U.S. soil, you are welcome to call the Congressional Switchboard and report it, and that number is 202-224-3121. And this is Debbie Dahmer of TS Radio Voices Carrie. This is, she's starting it, and we're going to pick up. It's time to get some action and get our elected officials to start working for us. Reverend Ralph, real quick. I know you were so excited to go visit your very much loved person on the Sunday that just happened to fall on Mother's Day. I know this was the thing you were just, I know you just couldn't wait to see her. How did that visit go, Reverend Ralph? It never happened, unfortunately. Uh, the oh, judge of the case, uh, Gail Zuckerman Weilheimer, and the guardians, uh, they because they've forced me to pay a monitor since last uh, November to watch me and my loved person uh, because of fake accusations that the guardians have made up about me, which is, seems to be common with a lot of uh, guardianships of demonizing the, those people, the loved people. And so they um, on Friday, or yeah, last Friday, there was a uh, conference in court and they said that, uh, you know, the judge said that uh, they will try their best to find a monitor for Mother's Day and also uh, the birthday of this person because I'm so close to this person. Well, Saturday morning I'm told uh, by the lawyer for the guardian that that was not going to take place because they just couldn't find a guardian. And yet the guardian or the monitor the monitor but it's interesting that the guardian that's their responsibility and the guardian doesn't seem to think it is and the guardian for this loved person is pam blummer of uh, near reading pennsylvania so these guardians like to shuck their responsibilities uh and try to do the most uh, disgusting things possible just to basically show people how tough they are uh, Pam Blummer also denied me Christmas with my loved person, denied me Easter, and denied me Good Friday, three of the most religious holidays for Christians of the year. Again, then on the birthday, on two days later, also Monday evening, I got an uh, email from the lawyer uh, who said, well, too bad, we can't find a monitor for this person's birthday. So, because I am now on welfare because of the money I wasted on lawyers for this case. Uh, I've had to be pro se, like many people have tried. And, uh, again, it's when you're pro se, you're expected to know as much as everybody else, as, or I should say expected to know as much as lawyers do. So 
So basically, uh, you're at a great disadvantage of trying to understand what the uh, lawyer's uh, procedures are and so forth. So basically, uh, the next step is I'm going to try to um, get another court meeting with uh, Gail Weilheimer and uh, the other people to, uh, you know, straighten this mess out. But again, they have the upper hand. And this is something, unfortunately, that happens in just about everybody's case where you're dealing with a corrupt judge, the corrupt lawyer for the person that was court assigned, and the corrupt lawyers for the guardian. So the victim, unfortunately, is paying for all this out of their account, and the family of this person, of any person, well, unfortunately, they're draining their savings, so they lose and again, they, the guardians always win because it doesn't cost them anything. So you have a, a problem where the guardian uh, is basically given unlimited access to all financial assets and also unlimited ability to just make any rules that they want. And this is unfortunate because there are no laws that tell or dictate to the guardian what they can and cannot do. And as the audience knows, uh, a couple of times I have read the quote from the Montgomery County website under the section of guardianship that basically dictates what a guardian and guardianship should be about, which is the person, the unfortunate person that is locked up in the guardianship, they have a right to speak their minds. They have a right, and again, it's not in law, but according to the Montgomery County website on guardianship, that's the way the guardianship should work, and that's the way the guardian should work. The fact that the, uh, uh, the unfortunate person in guardianship, they are most important. They are the ones that people should be catering to, not simply yes. drained of their money. And it's, it's very sad that these people, and again, this is going on nationwide, and I have learned the pain and suffering that these people, the families, have gone through by, uh, by what these just despicable guardians are doing and these corrupt judges who, again, it's only about the money. They don't care. They care only for themselves to get that money. And, it's again, it's something where – you, you feel you're obligated to spend every dollar you have to try to get your loved person out of guardianship, but you're fighting an uphill battle because the corrupt judge is giving a blank check to everybody that's part of the scam. Now, one of the things I learned briefly is that these psychologists that are brought into court to do these evaluations, I found out that some of them have contracts with the county. So the county, these judges that call on them, they're always going to get the decision they want. So people, when they first go into it, they think everything is going to be on the up and up. They don't realize until it's much, much later that everything has been pre-made, pre-fixed, and pre-arranged that the guardian is going to take over everything they've got. And to update the listeners, I had told you about a month or so ago I met the new Attorney General of Pennsylvania, Michelle Henry, at the end of a conference, and uh, I told her I wanted to set up a meeting with some of her people to discuss this corruption in the state of Pennsylvania. 
and I was told it would take about six weeks. So she has about two more weeks left before I'll contact her again. Unfortunately, I also met the district attorney of Bucks County, Matt Weintraub, gave him my business card, told him the same thing, and the next day his, the assistant district attorney called me back and said she would look into it. Well, I got the word the other day that a one-sentence reply from her, Sarah Salvo, that there will be no meeting. Just a one-sentence reply, there will be no meeting. <coughs> so apparently the district attorney of Bucks County doesn't seem to care that guardianship corruption is going on within his county and probably in every nursing home that exists there. And this is part of the problem, that you have these politicians that don't seem to care about what goes on because, again, they're just there to serve themselves. And then you have the uh, district attorney's offices, you have these judges that are probably most likely in on the scam, that they're getting something out of it. So it, it's, again, I have thought of so many things to try to do, to pass on, and we're going to get into that probably on the next show because of the show is so packed up today. So, Kyle, I'll send it back to you. All right. Well, Vic, you're probably getting a little taste. We are trying to battle the bad guys just like you did. But one thing that I'm excited about having Vic on is that so much of our life can be lemons, but we need to turn it into lemonade. And I can only imagine being a NYPD detective, you had days that were pretty lemon. I mean, battling some of the criminals that that we have seen and what we have heard about what goes on to, in New York City. But you have turned this, some of this negative stuff into something so positive, and you've written six different books with just a lot of fun different stories. And as we're all listening, I want those of us to listen to Vic and to really see how he has made lemonade out of lemons and have maybe someone who's listening they want to write a book and kind of take a different look at it we all know that netflix did the i care a lot movie and we know many people who are on ts radio network as well as listeners had numerous lengthy um, interviews with netflix along with sending over documents and we just love the i care a lot movie that they came out with it really explained how the scam worked and yet they did it in an entertaining way so that the message got across and so i feel that vic that's what you're going to do for us so vic tell us what made you start writing books well i had a wonderful 20-year career with the new york city police department i worked in a lot of different units i worked in a dui unit i worked in a plainclothes unit sort of like decoy um, I worked in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division in the, in the 90s during the crack epidemic doing buy and bust operations. And then my last 10 years, wow. I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing VIN numbers on, on stolen vehicles for resale, a lot of mafia and organized crime, chop shops and, and different crimes. And I retired after a wonderful 20-year career. And... Uh, I was bored. I moved down to sunny Florida. I was bored out of my mind. And friends and family said, you know, you've got all these wild stories, and they're funny, and you should really write them down. And I'm like, well, who the hell wants to hear what I have to say? And they said, well, just give it a shot. So I wrote my first book. I self-published it. And to my surprise, it started selling. The reviews came back positive, And it just kind of blossomed into a cottage industry for me that 
there's people out there that are interested in true crime and, and humorous behind-the-scenes look at the New York City Police Department. Wow. I know when I tell my story, because I was in and out of court for 11 years in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and when I tell people my story, I, they either think I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, I am a compulsive liar, <laughs> but what if I'm telling the truth? So the sort of crimes that, that we are really focused on are crimes against the elderly and disabled. And would you have any insight, like knowing that so many people listening are caring for elderly and disabled? We know that they are a target for scams, just all kinds of scams out there. Do you have any insight or advice to help people avoid being scammed? Or have you seen a lot of these sorts of scams in your in your service? Oh, absolutely. Well, see, the, the handicapped and the elderly make the best victims because oftentimes, you know, they have their guard down. They're not as quick as they used to. Their eyesight and their hearing isn't as well as it used to be. So they, they, they make excellent victims in that they make terrible witnesses. A lot of times they can't pick out their assailant moments after after the attack or, or whatever crime was committed because they just their eyesight or their their reflexes just aren't that quick. Um, yes, in New York City especially, there were a lot of crimes against the elderly. Um, a lot of times it would be different scams that, that wouldn't fly on the average person, say, from the ages of 18 to, to 60. So what, uh, mm-hmm. we, we sometimes would get gypsies. They would come to New York, and they travel in teams, and they travel the United States pulling different scams on people. They would go to apartment buildings uh, during the day, and old people are usually home, and they would knock on the door, and they'd have an exterminating tank, and there'd be two or three of them, and they'd say, oh, listen, your superintendent sent us, to, sent us up to your apartment. The whole building is infestated with cockroaches, but don't worry. We're, we're going to spray, and we're going to take care of it. There's no charge you at all. And more often than not, these elderly people would say, oh, okay, they'd let the, these two or three guys into the apartment. And while one guy is spraying and, you know, talking a mile a minute and keeping them busy, the other two guys are going through their rooms and ransacking for whatever cash or valuables they can find. And they would, and they would do this for a while. And actually what wound up happening is uh, it kind of cooled down for a while. And then a couple of weeks later, it came, uh, a radio run came over as suspicious uh, vehicle parked in front of a building. We pull up. There's three grown men in the car. They look at us. We look at them. They've got out-of-state plates. They pull off. We pull them over. The driver gets out. He comes running up to me, and he's going a mile a minute handing me all these documents. Well, that's, that's one of the reasons when if you've ever gotten pulled over and you try to get out of the police car and you try to get out of the car, the cop always tells you, please take a seat in the car. The reason they do that is when someone gets out of a car and starts handing you something, they don't want you to see what's in the car or see who's inside the car, so they're going to try to, like, slow you down. I told the gentleman, get back in the car, and then I saw an exterminating tank in the back seat, and they said, oh, we're exterminators. And I said, oh, what, are you, what kind of poison are you using? Well, I used to be an exterminator before I was a cop, so story didn't fly. Oh. We, we, we arrested oh. them, brought them into the precinct. We did lineups. They got picked out, and they all went to jail for a couple of years. But, oh, yeah, there's a lot of crimes against the elderly. And, and when I retired from the NYPD, I became a police officer for a short time in a small police department in Florida. And what I realized is in Florida, because well, Florida is heaven's waiting room, and you have so many elderly people down here that, that the state legislature has a lot of laws on the books about conning old people or elder abuse that New York City didn't have. So it's another tool that law enforcement has. 
And, uh, yeah, and, and to, to the Reverend Ralph's point, yeah, a lot of shady things do go on in nursing homes, unfortunately. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the police are the front line when they get called to these things to try to figure things out. I know in our case, and this, I don't know how, we would call the police and we would be told it's a court issue. And so it was really hard to sometimes get the help that, that really we need. It's more like this, it's a really special crime. It's like a white collar crime. Yes. And yet it's just harming. It's just so tragic. And we just appreciate so much that you are like helping people and just making these things that have, it's really people do to other humans. What, I have a question. What was some of like, like the tinfoil hat, kind of um, detective work that you had to do that anyone else would think this is crazy. There's no, like, X-File-like. Did you have any investigations like that? Not X-Files, but if you want to talk about tinfoil hat, there's a chapter in my book, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, and it's entitled uh, EDPs, which in the NYPD we call emotionally disturbed people. A lot of them are harmless. But, you know, you get called to things sometimes, or a lot of them hang around the precinct. New York is so big that sometimes you get these emotionally disturbed people. They almost become like the precinct mascot, and they hang around the precinct, and uh-huh. as long as they're not bothering anybody, and they, they just they keep an eye on the cars in the parking lot and go pick up people's lunch. And we had one guy, Bernard, and he looked like Carla's husband on Cheers, Nick Tortelli. He would dress up in a suit, okay. had a trench coat, and we'd carry an attorney's satchel. And you would think the guy was an attorney. And then he would start serving you with papers that were bogus. He would get your name. And any time you dealt with Bernard, he would put your name on these bogus files and serve you with papers. And eventually he became too much of a pain in the ass that we eventually had to borrow him from the station house. But we do come across a lot of tinfoil hat people. Oh, my goodness. That's that's uh that's crazy. Wow. How about famous people? Did you ever pull some over? I just saw recently Megan and Harry had some kind of drama up there in New York. Did you ever see anything oh, like that? Oh, that story. Uh, well, here's the thing. Megan and Harry's story doesn't pass the smell test. As a detective in the auto crime division, I've been involved in probably over 100 car chases. There is no way you could get into a two-hour car chase through Manhattan. It's it, it's just literally impossible. And there's so many cops in New York, someone would have seen it, and the police would have gotten involved. So I, I, yeah. I'm going to say that didn't happen. It might have happened in their mind, but I don't think it really happened. As far as running into famous people, yeah, there's a story in my book, The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, entitled Rubbing Elbows. And I met so many yeah. famous people. And the vast majority of them were nice. And that's basically who I write about because I really don't want to get involved in a lawsuit with the ones that weren't nice. But I, <laughs> Julianne Moore, yeah. Kevin Bacon, John Lovitz from Saturday Night Live, great guy. Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond, the big tall guy. Um, Harrison Ford. Uh, you name it, I bumped it. Peter Falk, the guy that played Columbo, I ran into him at the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and we recognized him. And he saw two cops, two uniform NYPD cops coming at him. And he tried to get away from us. And I grabbed his arm and I said, Pete, Mr. Falk. And he goes, no, you got the wrong guy. I go, no, 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 I don't. You're Columbo. And he's like, ah, Jesus, I got a dentist appointment. What do you want? So I wound up having a conversation with him for 20 minutes. But, yeah, if, 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 if you're in uniform in Manhattan and you just keep your head up and look around, eventually you're going to bump into someone famous. 
You know what? Uh, I got to tell you the fact that you said, yeah. Wait, I'm going to quick tell the Peter Fox story. So one of my friends, because I've gotten involved in the guardianship abuse stuff, is Catherine Falk. It's Peter Falk's daughter. And I don't know if you know what oh, happened know to story. Peter later in life. Yeah. So Catherine has the Catherine Falk Association. And I actually flew up to Syracuse. This was maybe four or five years ago. And I told everyone's like, you're going to get catfished. So I fly up to Syracuse because Columbo's daughter is going to pick me up. Yeah, and that's where Catherine went, and so did um, her dad. So we did a presentation up there. And so I fly up, and Columbo's daughter picks me up at the airport along with Sarah (laughs) Harvey. And I stayed in a room with her, and everyone was laughing at me, telling me I was going to get catfished. And sure enough, (laughs) she is just such a lovely person and she's in my phone. I, if she was listening, I would love for her to call in. But, yeah, just the stories that I've heard about her dad and the fact that we've all gotten to know her daughter is just what a, what a small world. Reverend Ralph, it sounds like you have a question. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, I have a de- question for the detective. Uh, how, did, how, how much have you heard about guardianship corruption uh, up in uh, when you were on the police force? Uh, because I see it as just another type of scam, like you were talking about the gypsies and so forth. Uh, so have you seen much of it, and how much do you know about it? Well, in New York, I never was involved with an elder abuse case from a nursing home. But when I was when I was a cop in Florida, and I was a cop in Florida for like a cup of coffee. It was like six to eight months, and it was like being on an episode of Reno 911, and I said, you know what, I, 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 it's time to get out of police work. I'm in my 40s. time to do something else. But in Florida, several times I was called to nursing homes where people suspected something was going on with their loved one, you know, and usually dementia or Alzheimer patients. And a couple of times I was at the scene where actually the nursing home stepped up and, and the employee was arrested for either stealing or, you know, manhandling an elderly person. But can things go on behind the scenes and the nursing home doesn't want to be a part of litigation and figures, again, this person is out of it. They're not going to make a witness, you know, they're talking about, they're talking nonsense. So who's going to believe them? Um, Could I see it happening? Yeah, absolutely. But did I see that? No. But I was there at a couple of scenes where nursing home employees were arrested um, and, and the nursing home did step up. But that's not to say you can't get a poorly managed nursing home or long-term health care facility that just doesn't care, you know what I mean, or, you know, just, just mm-hmm. turns a blind eye to it. Well, what I was referring to was uh, guardianship corruption in that they're there because they were guardianized uh, under false pretenses, and the guardian was stealing money from them. No, I, no, I have not. But, I mean, here's the thing. Cops get called to any type of dispute or anything, right? There's always three sides to a story. There's what he said, there's what she said, and what's really happened. Here's another problem. Cops only have a certain amount of time to mediate or get to the bottom of something, right? So you've got a person that is saying, you know, X, the nursing home is saying Y, they're going to tell you you've got to fight it out in court because cops aren't attorneys. A lot of times what they're handing you is legalese. You might not even understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're in the police academy, you take a six-month course in law, and it's more about, you know, mere suspicion, reasonable suspicion, probable cause, or in fact committed. 
there's a lot of legal jargon and, and things, and that, and that would actually aid the nursing home because they have teams of lawyers, right? They have all the money in the world to fight these things. So I, I have not, unfortunately. I think that's interesting just, like, just hearing, like, the three sides to every story and, like, you walk in, like, you just don't even know. And people always think that the judges and the lawyers are always doing the right thing. It's just it's just a really – it's a really well-thought-out crime that we're trying to expose. It definitely is. Um, what about – okay, so here's a question that I think kind of pertains to us. You were doing detective work. And sometimes you know, like, tell me if this ever happened to you. You know that they're guilty. You know they're guilty, but you just can't get them because you need to have, like, beyond a reasonable doubt, you need to have enough evidence. Have you ever had that sort of a situation where you just couldn't take the bad guy down? And if so, how did you, like, get over it and, like, like process that this, this bad guy basically, quote, quote, got away with murder? Well, there's a lot to unpack. So first of all, you quickly realize, or you should realize, if you're going to be successful in law enforcement, you, you learn not to take things personal. And that's what people say, you know, people in the street all the time cursing you and calling your name. You can't take it personal. And then to take it a step further, you're arresting people and you're seeing them walking out of jail or they're beating cases. And, I mean, especially when I worked organized crime, you know, you know it, it's obvious what they're doing but you just don't have enough to get them. You, you have to learn to compartmentalize mm-hmm. things and say, okay, well, they won this one. But here's the thing. Even if you're a successful criminal, you're going to slip up or something's going to – eventually you're going to get caught. Now, is, it gonna, is the punishment going to fit the crime? Not always, but, but you learn that you can't, take it, you can't take it to heart because if you do – and a lot of cops do – and they become miserable people because the system just absolutely burns them out. I think that's like super really awesome advice. You know what? We have a caller that wants to ask a question. Let's see. We we are so many people logged on right now. Let's see. We've got area code 703. Let's see. They're coming. Area code 703. You're live and on the air. Hello. Eric, um, it is- Hello. This is Marcel. It's nice to, to meet you, Detective. Marcel! Marcel, thank yes. you for calling in. Oh, absolutely. Marcel, absolutely. Mar- I, have to, I have to introduce you to Vic. So Marcel is, like, famous to me. Marcel is Marcel Reed. She brought down the Acorn 8, and she now runs the Whistleblower Summit, and she is one of the sponsors of this show here. And so... Whenever I get to talk to Marcel, I get starstruck. Marcel, thank you so much for calling in. Did you have some questions for Vic? Absolutely. Hi, Vic. I'm just Marcel. Hi, Marcel. I'm always always (laughs) amazed when she introduces me that way because I'm just Marcel. Um, But I do work with whistleblowers, and I really did want to have your opinion about what do you think about the new whistleblower legislation that they have for policemen now? One, um, do you think it's possible um, for a person to be on the police department and, and really report waste, fraud, and corruption and, and get out of it? Because one of the people that um, we honor at our summit um, very often is a man named Frank Serpico. 
Yeah, sure. And yeah, and he's always um, trying to talk about ways um, that the police can be strengthened through some kind of really functioning police review board. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I, I can speak to what goes on in the New York City Police Department. I, I can't speak for every police department in the country. And a lot, a lot of times with larger police departments, they're going to go through a corruption scandal at one time or another. And I, I talk about this in my books. So the NYPD, at any given time, the New York City Police Department is between thirty and 40,000 members. So the NYPD hires in bulk. <laughs> A small, a small police academy class could be 250 cops, and a large one could be 2,500. So they do. I, I could speak to when I was active. I mean, you, it, I was scrutinized. I mean, they went to every job wherever I worked. They came around my neighborhood. They talked to neighbors, wanted to know what kind of person I was. I took a, several psychological exams, and then I had to sit down with a psychologist and then a psychiatrist. Going over that, it was drug screening, physical, and you're on a two-year probationary period where the department can fire you for anything. So they're figuring if you're if you're a screw up, we're going to catch it then. Unfortunately, there are people that do slip through. Oftentimes, they have a very high IQ, hiding in plain sight, and they're going to use the, their power and their position to their advantage to see what they can get. As far as monetary gain or doing favors for somebody, uh, I'll say this about the NYPD: they take corruption very seriously. There's a sign in every precinct in every room that says, "If you spot police corruption, it must be reported immediately." If you don't report it, and even if you're not involved in it, but you knew about it, you're going down with everybody else. You're, you're going to be fired. You might not be prosecuted, but you're definitely going to be fired. Um, it is tough call when people come forward and step up and say, listen, there's something really bad going on here and it should be looked at. What often will happen sometimes, though, is someone will claim they're a whistleblower and they've got a grievance against somebody and it's a picayune thing and they want protection from retaliation. But there have been times in the NYPD, I'll tell you a story, it's wild. I was in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division and another team had done a search warrant, and they, I forget, it was a couple ounces of cocaine. And this back at the precinct, they were processing in a, in a Harlem precinct, and they're sitting around, there's like three or four guys and, and a sergeant, they're sitting around a table, and they're preparing their vouchers, and you've got cocaine on the table. And this detective just walks over to the table, opens up a bag of Coke, scoops out a couple of things like he's going to make a cake, and walks away and goes into the bathroom. And everybody's looking at each other like, was this a joke? Is, is he kidding me? Like it, it was like, it was like something if you couldn't believe your eyes. The detective comes out of the bathroom, high as a kite, and the sergeant, you know, got on the phone with internal affairs. The detective went home. The New, um, the New York State Police and internal affairs showed up at the detective's house. They pulled him out of his house. They brought him to the trooper barracks. They made him urinate in a cup. He, he was dole-tested tested high off the charts, and they fired him, you know, he was fired within days. So, yes, I mean, if guys see something like that or something, you know, corruption-related, yes, they, they, they are supposed to report it, and they should report it. Hmm. Good. I, I simply wanted to ask about it because um, 
very soon, hopefully, um, you know, we will be, um, well, maybe we'll talk about this later, but um, there mm-hmm. is a marshal here uh, in the D.C. area, and his name is uh, Fogg, Matthew Fogg, and he has been on an all-out um, reporting of corruption within the U.S. Marshals Department, and he said they took him to a some site and left him there, uh, knowing very well that he could be killed uh, because he was reporting corruption within the marshals, the U.S. Marshal Service, and it just sounds so much like what happened to Serpico. And I know there there are very good police, and I have them in my family. But I also know that there is a code where they really don't talk about it. I just wondered, had you experienced that? I have not. Um, I, I was lucky enough. You've got to remember, I got hired in 1987. I was actually mm-hmm. in the golden age of the NYPD because New York was really in dire straits when I got hired, and then Rudy Giuliani came in and cleaned up a lot of the nonsense. When mm-hmm. I got hired... I got hired a couple, um, about 15 years after the NAP Commission. New York City had a lot of police corruption in the 70s. And the NAP Commission, which was, which was Serpico, was one of the whistleblowers, and there was a sergeant, I think his name was David Dirk. Then there was a couple of, of NYPD guys that came forward and said, listen, you got the mafia, you know, is basically greasing cops with gambling money, and they're looking the other mm-hmm. way, and there's a lot of things going on here that's right. And there was. Um, hired it was kind of in the fog of that the new york city police the reason serpico became famous and everything was because nypd had layoffs and there was a big hiring push after a couple of years and you had a lot of guys from the vietnam i'm not saying this about every vietnam veteran so please if you're a vietnam veteran please don't take this the wrong way but they hired a lot of people that weren't right and i saw that because by the time i got hired there was a couple of vietnam guys in my precinct that were just not right. I, I, was, mm-hmm. I was surprised how they could have passed the psychological. So point, I, I, the NYPD does the best it can to protect whistleblowers, but can I see someone catching a lot of, I don't want to curse on the show, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that U.S. Marshal, if he was dumped in the middle of nowhere and he had his phone, I think he's got a very easily provable case because your phone tracks you everywhere. There'll be cell site, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I think mm-hmm. what, whatever happened to him should be easily provable if it happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. This is a great thank show. You. Um, you know, thank you uh, very much for answering my questions. I'll continue to listen. I'm, I won't interrupt because uh-huh. I'll try not to. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Marcel. I'm I'm getting over being starstruck right now because I oh, love Marcel. No. I can remember. She, she came on the show when it was just me and Marty one time as my birthday present, and I was so excited. So, oh Mar- Marcel, we all may love you. you. Thank you so much for listening. Okay. And may Thank you get better you. presents. Okay. Bye-bye. Oh. Thank you, Marcel. Bye-bye. Thank you, Marcel. We have another caller. We're getting lots of questions here. It looks like we have area code 75. Area code 757, you're live and on the air. Um, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm wondering if you were there on 9-11. Oh. Um, 
I'll wow. tell you, I got a wild story. I got a wild story about 9/11. On, on 9/11, that morning, I came in early. I was doing a court tour, seven in the morning till three, 3 p.m. And the reason I came in early, and my office was up in the Bronx, was I had locked up this guy for a couple of stolen cars, and he was in jail in Manhattan, and he wanted to cut a deal with us and become a confidential informant. He was going to give us um, some Department of Motor Vehicle employees that were pumping out um, bad licenses out of one of the offices. So we were going to go down there and have a meeting with his attorney, the district attorney, and if he had fruitful information and we believed him, we would get him out, and he was going to work for us, and, and you know, if, if he provided fr- fruitful information, it's called court consideration. Maybe he would get a fine or probation, or maybe he would continue to become a confidential informant. Anyway, so we had to leave my office by 8, eight in the morning to get down to court to find parking and then clock in and go up to the courthouse. My sergeant was running late, and 8 o'clock rolls around. My sergeant's nowhere to be found. I'm calling him. He's stuck in traffic. He shows up about 8.30 in the morning, and I said, listen, come on. we got to go. We're going to be late. It takes a long time to get to Manhattan. He goes, okay, okay. While we're in the office, somebody, one of the cops from the precinct downstairs comes running upstairs and says, put on the news. We put on the news, and the first plane had already hit, and we're watching it on TV. And then the second plane uh-huh. hit, and it was fairly obvious to everybody that obviously this is terrorism. So the call came from downtown. Everybody get in uniform and stand by. And by 1, 1.30 p.m., we all drove down there, and I was down there walking around. And it was like something out of a, it was like something out of a science fiction movie because we, we came down the west side of Manhattan, and then they kind of marched us in, and everything was covered in that toxic dust. And the closer you got to, the, to uh, ground zero, the darker it got. It was like a wild, like a twilight haze because of all those particles in the air the sunlight had difficulty getting through. And everything, we, I think we came down Broadway, and there were thousands of pairs of women's high heel shoes all over the place because all those women that worked in the financial district or the Twin Towers, what they, you can't run in heels apparently. I didn't know that. And they, threw their, yeah. they just threw their shoes and ran barefoot. And it was like the last scene of Planet of the Apes when Charlton Heston goes to the beach and there's the Statue of Liberty head on the beach. We, I, I, we're just standing there. We're standing at ground zero, and the facade of the building is just stuck in the concrete, and we're just like, how can this be? You know, I felt like a child seeing something that I just couldn't understand. And there was all sorts of crazy things going on, like some guy in a white spacesuit walked by us with a Geiger counter, and we're like, is this guy from the government, or is this guy some lunatic from New Jersey with a Geiger counter who figured, well, today's the day. I want to test this thing out. And I was wow. down there from about probably one thirty in the afternoon till about 5 a.m. the next day. They told us, go home, you know, take a shower, run your clothes through a washing machine, get all this stuff off of you, and be back at 5.30 p.m. And I did that for, like, the first week. Then they pulled my unit out, and we were going back and forth. I did the bucket brigade for a while, you know, sifting through the debris on the pile. And then, since I was an auto crime detective, what they did was, all, when they started getting heavy equipment in there and bringing the debris out to the, uh, the dump in Staten Island, there were a lot of vehicles that were crushed, police cars, fire trucks, personal vehicles. So they had us there with the jaws of life chopping up these cars to see if anybody was inside. So I spent a lot of time out at that dump. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't pretty, but, um, you know, I'm glad it's over. And, uh, yeah, but, yeah, I was down there for quite a bit. 
Vic? How this is Reverend Ralph. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Vic, this is Reverend Ralph. I have a question about, uh, you were talking about the gypsies. Uh, is that a nationwide organized uh, syndicate, uh, and do they come from a specific country? Um, there's different kinds. You, you have the, the tinkers, the Irish ones. They're, I think, somewhere in the south, but they come up north. They do a lot of construction scams. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll show up in a neighborhood, right, and, hey, you, you, you want us to put pavers in your driveway? And you're like, yeah, all right. And they'll, they usually do, like, the first one correctly, like, you know, and, and then the neighbors see what they're doing. It's like, yeah, oh, would you, would you, would you, you want pavers too? And they start taking money up front, right, to, for materials, and then you never see them again. Um, the ones that I dealt with were, were um, I think they were more like European. I, I'm gonna, I don't want to disparage Romanians, but I, I'm pretty sure they were Romanian gypsies. Um, and, and they're in different cities. They tend to marry within their own. Um, they stick together. Supposedly, there's like a ruling uh, panel, like a gypsy king that's in charge of like the whole thing. And all right, you're going to marry this one, and you're going to go work with this team doing slip and falls in Indiana. And you know what? You're going it, to. It's teams of guys. It's usually men, but the women, the women will do things too. Like the women will go into jewelry stores, stores and start looking at jewelry, and then like one of the kids will go and take a piss in a corner, and when it like. When the when the clerk gets distracted, that bracelet goes in her pocket and they're gone. So there are different ethnic groups that do these things. I, I, we also dealt with pickpockets. A lot of them were South American, and they were good. I mean, they, if you go down to Midtown Manhattan or especially around the theater district, right, I mean, try to keep your wallet in your front pocket because they will bump into you, and there's teams of them. So one picks your pocket. And even if you turn around quick, like, what the hell just happened, like you have an idea of what happened, that wallet is getting passed to someone else walking the other way. So if the cops grab the first person, they don't have the wallet. Wow. It sounds like very mastermind. Do you have, like, an example of the people. most intelligent? Yeah. The most intelligent mastermind criminal that you ever dealt with, and what was the story? worked on an international shipping case. So we had, um, we had a guy from China who, um, he was the mastermind of this, this crew of guys. So you had this guy from China, and what he did was he hooks up with this Jamaican middleman from the Bronx, and he starts putting in orders for stolen cars. The Chinese guy rents a warehouse in Brooklyn. The Jamaican guy is the middleman. The Jamaican guy is paid $5,000 a vehicle. The Jamaican guy farms out steel teams, right? The Jamaican guy pays uh-huh. the car thieves between $500 and $1,000 a car. And the order was very specific. They wanted Audi A6s. And the color had to be silver and black. The car thieves would steal the cars. They would put park the cars in the street for a couple of days to let them cool off. Once they were sure that the cars didn't have GPS or low jack, they were driven out to Brooklyn. And on a weekday, it's 7, 8 in the morning when, you know, there's a lot of traffic out. Two or three stolen Audis would go into this warehouse. The gate would shut. Inside the warehouse, they had shipping containers with Chinese nationals. And what they would do is they would drive two stolen Audis per shipping container. They'd let the air out of the tires so the vehicles would sit low. Then their workers would build wooden frames above the two stolen cars so they could hoist one or two additional cars. So that each shipping container contained between three to four stolen Audis. 
Then they would call a shipping company that would truck the, the, the container with the stolen vehicles out to Newark, New Jersey. They were put on, they were put on trains, railed across the continental United States. Then they were loaded on shipping containers in Long Beach, California. And then the vehicles were shipped to Shanghai. And this was going on for years before we even knew about it. But like any other criminal, they got greedy. You know, they're probably doing a couple of cars a month, and it was so lucrative. They started stealing 25, 30 cars a month. So we go up on wiretaps. We have the Asian phones tapped. We have the car thieves tapped. And what we quickly find out is our car thieves are in the murder for hire business. And they're talking about whacking this guy and whacking that guy. So when we took the whole case down, we cleared, I think, between 13 and 15 homicides. To break wow. it up with international car theft ranks. So that's pr- probably the most sophisticated that I've worked on. That You know, you I have a point, like, I when you, like, look at, like, serial killers and stuff, they start to get comfortable in their crimes. They're getting away with it so often. Like, do you take logical classes to, like, the mind of the criminal and how they think? I did not. It's, um... It just depends on who you're looking at. You know, it's the ones that get caught all the time are the morons or they're just doing it so often it's the law of averages. In that particular case, there was one of the car thieves, this guy Mario. I mean, I should actually write a book about him. He was stealing, I mean, nonstop. Like, his phone was going. And he wasn't just stealing for the Asians. I mean, he was stealing for everybody. At one point during the case, his girlfriend's uncle died. And on the way to a funeral... He spotted a, um, what was it, a, a Nissan Maxima with Bose speakers. And he's like, he told his girlfriend, I, I can't pass this up. She drops him off. He steals this Nissan Maxima, brings the Maxima to the funeral. And then after the funeral, wow. drives out to New Jersey and drops the car off. So I asked him, when we took the case down, I said, you know, and he flipped because he was the getaway driver in a lot of these homicides, if you want to get into that. that that's pretty interesting. And uh, he was a getaway driver, and he flipped because, he, you know, it, even if you're participating in a murder, even if you don't pull the trigger, you're just as guilty as the trigger man. And he knew he was going to jail for the rest of his life, so he started spilling his guts. And I asked him, I go, out of how many cars do you steal do you get confronted? And he says, ah, it depends, between like 75 and 100. And I go, well, out of that, I go, all right. I go, what do you say? And he goes, I always throw my hands up if it's a newer car. And I say, whoa, 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 don't, 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 don't get mad at me. Get mad at your bank. He always used to play it that he was a repo man or he picked the wrong car. And then I said, well, how often do you get arrested? He goes, oh, it's rare. He goes, you guys are a pain in the ass because you keep getting me because you're on me. He says, but he goes, it, he goes every couple of years. So it's, it, they play the law of averages. Yes, and that's so interesting. You know what? I did do my homework, and I was watching you on some YouTube videos, and you were telling a funny story about a toupee. And the guy didn't think that your coworker didn't think anyone would notice that he was wearing a toupee. Did you want to share that story? Yeah. Um, I worked with a guy. He was an ex-Marine, real tough guy, uh, you know, you know in impeccable uniform, just, you know, professional police officer. I can't say enough good things about him. But he was bald. And uh, guys used to break his balls about it. Cops are always abusing each other. It's a, it just comes with the territory. And uh, one day we, we had three days off, and he shows up, and we're in the locker room, and he had reddish hair to begin with, and he's got this 
swirl on his head, this terrible reddish toupee. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And he goes, what are you talking about? I says, dude, your hair. And he goes, no, I'm combing it differently. I go, bro, I said, you can tell me. And he, and he would not admit to it. So I go upstairs, and I'm waiting for roll call to start. He comes upstairs. And, he, you know, it was, it was almost like a joke because you hear everybody laugh and people are pointing at it. He would not admit to it. And then after roll call, my administrative lieutenant pulls me aside. He goes, what the hell is wrong with him? I says, boss, what, what do you want me to tell you? He says he's combing his hair differently. He goes, he goes my ass. He goes, are you kidding me? And he, he later went to the highway department, the highway unit, where you have to wear a hat more often. So, But, yeah, it, it, it was um, – I got a couple of toupee stories. But, yeah, that one was um, – he just – he didn't think anybody would notice. <laughs> that I think that's funny. And I think those are the fun stories that are in your books, that it's – you know, you've had – I mean, 9-11 and the, and the things dealing with the mafia and the things that you're having to do on the job every day and that you have turned some of those memories into something that people can be entertained with, like the lemons to the lemonade and just the different stories. Like even just hearing that, I mean, I never knew all the women just left their shoes at 9-11. That was just an interesting tidbit. And I love I love that about all your books. Did you have a few more stories that you think everyone would like to hear that are in your books? Sure. You want to hear the Hansel and Gretel story? Yes. All right. So the Hansel and Gretel story is from NYPD through the looking glass. So the Hansel and Gretel story is the early 90s, and we're going to cop bars, young guys going out, meeting women. And there's this cop from another precinct who – worked with this cop Hawaii later would work. We used to call the other guy cancer because he killed more people than cancer. That's another story. But his old partner was a magician in his spare time. So we're at the bar talking to girls, and the magician would come over, this off-duty cop, and he starts pulling flowers out of his sleeve and snatching gold coins from behind these girls' ears. And we couldn't compete with the guy because he always he was just such a distraction. So I turned to his partner, and I go, get him out of here. And he goes, you know, if he took his police career as serious as, as making animal balloons in the radio car, he'd be a one-man crime fighter. He was just the laziest cop in the world. So one night on a midnight, the magician and my old partner get called out to the six-story basement apartment. And the call is 911, calls for help. The caller hangs up. They go into the basement of the six-story walk-up, and there's two doors. So they go to door number one, they bang on the door, and nobody answers. My old partner goes to bang on door number two, and the magician pulls him and says, nah, don't, don't knock on the door. He goes, no, 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 I just want to see. And he goes, listen, we made all this noise down here with our radios and nice things. If anyone called 911, they would open the door. That We made enough noise. Let's go. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. So they leave. What they didn't know is behind door number two, the super of the building was selling coke out of his apartment. The superintendent got addicted to coke, fell behind on his payments, in the drug world, when you're buying weight on consignment and you don't pay up, they're going to cancel your ticket. So the super knew he had a problem. He wasn't leaving his apartment very often. So these two Albanian hitmen, this is an old gypsy trick, they bang on the door with an attractive female. So the super looks out his peephole, sees this beautiful girl, opens the door, and the three of them bum rush him, right? They start pistol whipping the super. Where's the money? Where's the coke? He doesn't have the answers. So they shoot the super in the head. They roll him up in a carpet, they take him out of the apartment, and they throw him in the furnace of the building. 
So while he's going oh my up God. like a Puerto Rican fire, yeah, he's going up like a Puerto Rican fire log. They go back into the apartment and they start ransacking, right? So while they're ransacking the apartment, the cops are outside and they're going to knock on door number two. So inside the apartment, the two guys tell the female, if those cops knock on the door, let them in. Start yelling in Yugoslavian and point to the kitchen. When you pass the threshold of this bedroom, throw yourself on the floor. We're going to come out and shoot them in the head, and we'll throw them in the furnace, and we'll get out of here. Wow. So, but the cops never knock on the door. So two weeks later, a week or two later, the super of the building had family. So the family is like, what happened to this guy? They call the police. The detectives get involved, and they see there's a 911 radio call about two weeks before on the midnight. They bring in my old partner, the magician. They go, did anything stand out? And they say, well, we knocked on this door. We didn't knock on that door. Well, the guy is missing. Well, when, when my old partner and the magician were leaving the building outside, there was a car parked in the fire hydrant, and my old partner gave it a parking ticket. That was the getaway car. So the detectives oh, oh traced the getaway God. car to the female was the registered owner. They bring her in for questioning. She starts spilling her guts, trying to minus, you know, minimize her involvement, of course. They were able to grab the two Albanian hitmen. They locked her up and the two other guys. Then they had to go back to the building in, like, February and shut the heat off for, like, two days so that furnace would get cool enough that they could get his skull and bones out of the, um, out of the incinerator. Oh, my gosh. This is, like, the stuff that you watch movies on. And these are all these fun different stories in six different books that you have. Okay, I have another question. So when I'm when I'm not battling, you know, corrupt guardians, I am a pastry chef and I bake. And one of the pastry items that I bake a lot of is called a donut. Is it true? Oh, it's definitely true. Listen, cops <laughs> love coffee because, and I was never a coffee guy. Like I was a tea drinker. And later in my career, I'm starting to hit my 40s. I'm starting to lose a gear. Don't have as much energy as I used to. And my, actually, that guy, Cantor, said to me, he goes, why don't you start drinking coffee? And I'm like, oh, I hate the taste. He goes, you'll get past that. And now, you know, now I love coffee. But So cops go to coffee places, and unfortunately, they will overindulge. Oh, yeah, cops, cops have the worst diet in the world, especially like if you work in a neighborhood, like a busy neighborhood in a busy precinct. You're answering 20, 30 radio calls a night. You're not getting a full hour where you can sit down and eat, you know, a salad. You know, you're eating Chinese food or pizza and donuts and coffee. And unfortunately, um, cops do overindulge. There's a chapter in my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, entitled Sickness, Health, and Fat Bastards. And that's about overweight cops and cops that try to scam the system getting out on disability. I got a whole chapter about overweight cops getting themselves in, in ridiculous situations. Oh my goodness. That, that is, um, that is so funny. Like to hear all that. I have a really, I have a cute story. So I was working at a McDonald's and these, these, um, punks come through the drive-thru and you know normally you don't pay attention what's going on in the car except they were cussing and swearing and so I make when you're mean in the drive-thru you're going to pull ahead and I'm going to tell you you're going to wait for your french fries because I'm going to make you wait and so I go up and there's a police officer on his break and I'm like oh you know there's some guys I just pulled them ahead they're all drinking and the beer cans were out and you knew they were underage and he goes 
when their fries are ready, I'll bring their order out to them. And before you know it, there was the police everywhere and all the lights and everything. So I think it just goes to pay. You have to be nice when you're in, you know, the food service people because you're going to come in for break and you might have to bring the McDonald's order out to the parked car that's doing a crime. We have another caller. It looks like we have area code 505. Let me pull it up. Area code 505, you're live and on the air. 505? Area code 505. Oh, hi. Hello? Are you there? Oh. Are you there? Yeah, you're live and yeah, you're oh. live on, on the air. This is Marsha. Yeah, hi. I just wanted to say Mar- I, I was I was late getting to the, listening to the show, but I just wanted to say what great stories! Oh my goodness, you know, I mean it's amazing. I think uh, it, what it really shows me and should show everybody, and I'm sure you already talked about this, um, is that conspiracy isn't always just a conspiracy. A conspiracy is a real thing where people work together to accomplish a, a goal, right? And people just have a tendency to say, ah, oh, that can't happen. These guys going to Shanghai, doing, nobody would expect that these car thieves are going around working together, Jamaicans, Chinese, whoever, and nobody would really believe that. I mean, if you come to our arena of guardianship, where all these really awful thefts and things are going on, of course, not in all of them, but, you know, obviously cases like the ones you hear on this, this station, um, nobody believes it. They say that the judges and the, the lawyers aren't working together with the guardians, with the visitor, with the yeah. this and the that. And, and the truth is they really, some of them really are. And people, I, I'll never forget my friend whose her companion was in guardianship that she kept saying to me, there's something wrong. These people are all working together. I don't get it. I don't know what's happening here. So it's very disarming when you find out there are a whole group of people involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, you, you try to I be agree. objective in law enforcement. You, you try to, like, and sometimes as crazy as the story is, I mean, sometimes the story is just nonsense. But yeah. on, other times, like you said, like like that international shipping case, it's, you know, we just couldn't believe. Like in that case, there was a guy that, that was responsible for the majority of the homicide, and we just couldn't believe the reasons why yeah. he killed people. So these guys were bumping people off. I mean, contract hits, and also what they would do sometimes is they would ride around Manhattan on motorcycles, and they would look for somebody oh, yeah. who had a bike that they wanted. And what they would do is they would say you had a brand new bike and you're sitting at a light in Manhattan, you know, on a Friday, Saturday night, you're out taking your bike out. They would pull up at a light and surround the guy. And then this guy Fausto would get off the bike and stick a gun in in the guy's ribs and go, get off the bike. And if that guy didn't get off the bike fast enough, Fausto would kill him. And what happened was one of the homicides Uh in that case was this gentleman was a, a club, a club owner in Manhattan. And the detectives, everybody thought he was involved in organized crime. Because it's like, well, he, he was, he's involved in the club scene and just the way the hit went down. And I actually knew this, this club promoter, this club guy. I worked with a friend of his who was a cop, really nice guy. And he's like, I'm telling you, he goes, there is no way this guy is involved in organized crime. And he was right. But everybody thought yeah. it was organized crime. And then when 
then when we started debriefing this guy Mario, he was like, yeah, no, we rolled it, rolled up on this guy. And I mean, some wow. of the stories were just so unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. They're stranger than fiction. I mean, they're just shocking. Um, it's pretty amazing. Anyway, I just wanted to pipe in and say, say that. And Thank I love you. your stories. And I can't wait to read your books. Marsha, they're on Amazon. Yeah, hey, so just type in Vic Ferrari. I will. I sure will. Thank you. Can we get them? Can we get autographed books? Does, is that a thing? I don't have books. It's Amazon is by publishers. So, you know, you go on Amazon and you just, you know, you order a book. Amazon sends you a ten dollar paperback. I, I, unfortunately, I don't have books. I I, I ship to Amazon. Oh. Oh, my goodness. Well, we are all going to be so excited to get some of them. When did you first start writing them? Uh, 2016. Okay, so this this is all pretty fresh. All right, you know what? Yeah, we have another. Let's see. Go ahead. We had another caller. Did they just go away? Hold on. Where did they go? Oh, don't go away. Uh, no, they they took their they they unraised their hand. Um, I think, what was that? Was that a Chicago area code? Raise your hand again. Oh, wait, I think I see them. Here they are. I think this is them. Hold on. Area code 845? Area code 845? I think that's New York. Hello? Area code 845? Hello, 845? Oh, unmute. Hello, I'm so sorry about that. I was reading the mute and the unmute incorrectly. I'm from New York. Hi, Vic. Hey, how you doing? Where in New York? Um, upstate New York. Um, I wanted to, I guess if you don't mind, I wanted to cash in on what, um, who was that who just called? Marsha? Marsha you Southwick. Know, I have a couple of things. Who was it? That, Marsha Southwick of NASCA. Oh, she's Marcia in um, New Mexico. Yeah, that was Marcia Southwick. She's in New Mexico. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Vic will agree. I have a couple of things to say, but I think Vic will agree that, I mean, a conspiracy is terminology that's used all the time, you know, in police, policing, FBIing, you know, and all, all that it requires is for more than one person to plan to commit or to commit a crime, Right. Conspiracy to commit a crime, conspiracy, whatever. So, it, you know, it's, it sounds like a big word, and I think they poo-poo the general public using it so that they can uh, discredit us and silence us when we're bringing this type of issue regarding guardianships, fraudulent guard, guardianships and theft of the state uh, to the attention of authorities. So that's one way to do it. Um, and we were speaking about... Uh, the corruption in New York, New York City, not that I know that much, but around the time of an incident that I had experienced regarding corruption, it was in the state of Florida, I was, I was made aware of a police officer from the state of New York. His name was uh, Adrian Schoolcraft. Does that ring a bell at all, Vic? Yes. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I was already retired when that when that. Ha- I know a little bit about it. Are you already retired when that? Well, it it wasn't, I mean, it doesn't sound like a major deal, but he reported the corruption of of the officers being required to satisfy quotas that were unlawful and however they could, 
get ticketing done to bring in more revenue and all of that. So he reported that, and suddenly he was he became a target for whistleblowing uh, because that's what we experience when we're talking about guardianships and all of that. We we become uh, pariahs and and prey now to to being targeted to to be silenced, but. In Adrian Schoolcraft's case, and this is what they do to us, let me get back to him, you know, they tried to discredit him and his superior officers were making allegations, you know, maybe you need some time off and that, 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 you know, and it went on and on. So he started recording conversations and all of that. And one day he was off from work and home and they were busting down his door, door to get him, they being the New York City Police Department, Right. And not the department, but you know what I mean, the police. And he had turned on his tape recorder and recorded the whole thing. And they were saying, we got to take you in. There's something wrong with you. You know, you need some psychological counseling. And they brought him to Bellevue. This is a true story, people, um, in New York City. Well, and, I, do, and, I do know about it, and I saw a documentary on it. All right, so here's the thing. My point is this. Um, well, the point is, is that he sued the city for his father happened to be a former police officer retired, and he managed to get him out of that Bellevue State Hospital or whatever the ho- he was in the psych ward. But that's where they that's where they put a lot of people who they want to discredit, and they they make false allegations. Which brings me to the next. And he sued, and he won a few million dollars. I mean, he's in Wikipedia. He's on, you know. You could Google his name, Adrian Schoolcraft. Okay. Do you you want me to weigh in on this or? Yeah. Um, Okay. okay, Go ahead. Cause is in charge. Go ahead. All right. No, no. I'm just, you got, there's a lot to attack. So I'm going to agree with you more than you think. So you say police department will deny it. The reality is, yes, they lost someone's quotas. I don't know about now, but there were when I was active, and I know the old timers used to speak of it. Here, here, when I was there, I could speak to what I saw. So I could have 10 felony arrests, deliver three babies, and capture Osama bin Laden. If you didn't write a book of parking tickets, if you didn't write 10 moving violations, three of which were red lights, which is the big moneymaker, you were going to get a talking to. And depending on your supervisor, you, you probably would get a subpar evaluation. And if you complained about it, and it's very um, compartmentalized, and usually what happens is it's usually like the cop, sergeant, or lieutenant, like if it does get brought to light, they're they're the fall guy. But this comes from one police plaza, and you are right. There is revenue involved. I don't know exactly what that kid – I know people that refuse to write summons. I mean, and would they mess with you? To a degree, you might not get that day off. Or if you wanted to get a special assignment inside the precinct, you might not get it. Um, So, yeah, would there be quasi-retaliation? I don't know that young man. I don't know. There could be more to that story. I never saw anybody thrown into a psych ward for not writing summonses. I did watch the documentary on him. Again, like I said earlier, there are three sides to a story. I don't know if he pushed the envelope with that to really get it provoke a reaction. I don't know that to be true. But what I'm well, saying I don't know is, yes, could have, there is. Could have just been an honest cop. That's the way it sounded. Um, if you don't mind, I just want to interrupt you because I'm not going to be able to stay on. But I did want to tell you that 
you know, people in our, in our business, being the fraudulent guardianships and the ultimate goal, which is to steal the estates of the, uh, the wards of the state, I'm not, I'm not sure if you even understand what that is all about. But, you know, if we, ha- we have attorneys that go to, uh, to bats to save these and rescue these people who are basically kidnapped out of their lives and everything about their lives are taken over, they have no more rights, um, what was I going to say about that? Hmm. My goodness. Oh, I was going to say, so we have some attorneys, just like police officers, um, who go to bed to try to rescue these people, and then they're called all kinds of names, and they get false accusations against them by the Bar Association, and it just seems like people live in fear, and it's in, it's in all industries. It's not just police, because I believe that police, for instance, when they had uh, when the, the the officer had his knee on the neck of, of, of George Floyd, and and the, the other officers just watched. Like, why would why would they do that? They're probably decent police, but how can you say that if you're going to just stand there and watch somebody's life being snuffed out right before our eyes? I mean, it's just lunacy. Ooh. But I know just working I'm gonna, in. Law I'm gonna switch. I'm going to switch the topic up because I wanted it. I know that's just an awful, awful story that happened, and I'm in Wisconsin, so that's like a four-hour drive for me. My son lives up there. I wanted to keep it on a more positive note, and so I'm sorry. I'm going to – let's not talk about that. Well, that you're keeping it on a note that has nothing to do mind. with guardianships and yeah. what the police have right. Can I ask one last question? Um, are you taught about the Constitution when you come to become a police officer? Absolutely. Okay, you are. I mean, because some some police officers don't seem to know, you know, to ch- I mean, are you allowed to check the orders that you're following, like a court order? Do you check the veracity, whether it's true or not? Or well, not really? So you if you're tell- talking about... Go ahead. you got to let me talk. Uh, so okay. if you get caught, like we were talking earlier about a guardianship, right? Say for argument's sake, a cop goes to something and... You have a relative, a loved one there that is, you know, saying that there's elder abuse or, you know, they're bilking me or whatever, right? If the cop doesn't understand what's going on oftentimes, I know in New York they're going to call a supervisor. That's the first thing. And the supervisor yeah. oftentimes will refer, and not every police department has access to this, but the New York City Police Department has a legal division that's open 24 hours that if something, if they need access to an attorney, they can call the legal bureau or, depending on the borough, they can call the di- local district attorney's office and get an answer. Yeah, and like you said, you, you lawyers go to school for like eight years and you have a six month. So I, I totally get that. Um, I guess we need to have it like warm and fuzzy again. I want to hear another story from a book. You, you pick a topic and I'll give you a story. Okay. Let me think. Um, have you ever had to save, like, a cat from a tree? No, I have not saved a cat from a tree, but I'll tell you an animal story. So I think, okay. it, I think it was 94, 95, big blizzard in New York. And in New York, if you're parked on the street and that snowplow comes by, it throws feet of snow up against the side of your car, even police cars. So... We, we come into work after a snowstorm, and there's snow everywhere around the precinct, and the cars are parked on the street. And for whatever reason, my partner and I were given the keys to a police van. So a police van sits up higher, obviously, than a police car. 
and um, we had to dig out the we had to dig out the van. So we got shovels and we're digging out the police van and we're digging underneath the side of the van, and you know you're punching a hole through the snow, and this beautiful orange chow pokes its head through the hole in the snow that we just cleared. I'm like, what the hell is this? And it was a stray dog, and during the snowstorm, it got underneath this van, got snowed in, got the dog, and one of the female cops took it home, and the dog lived a, a, a wonderful life we <laughs> underneath I, a, a packed in van, police van full oh of snow. God. So do you feel that you saved the dog's life? By doing if that? If the, if, I feel, yeah, because if, if, yeah. if the snow didn't melt for a couple of days, it probably would have starved. You want to yeah, hear another yeah. funny animal story? Yes. So towards the end of my career, I had come up with a couple of different arrests that weren't involved in auto crime. It was a gun. Another time I walked into a gambling den and, and just grabbed everybody. My lieutenant calls me into his office. He goes, Vic, you're doing a great job. Stick to auto crime. I go, boss, I know what you mean, but I just happen to walk into these things. He goes, I get it. Next time, call Vice, give it to them. Don't put handcuffs on people. I was like, all right. He goes, stick to auto crime. Then my sergeant calls me into his office, and he says, um, these Vespa motor scooters, these little Italian motor scooters, they're getting stolen like crazy on Manhattan's Upper East Side. He goes, see if you can put, find out who's stealing them and where they're going. I go, all right, boss. I start running the license plates of these little Italian motor scooters that are stolen, and I see one is recovered up in the South Bronx, and it was like a teenage kid. So my, my, my train of thought is, okay, it's a bunch of teenagers going up to the Upper East Side. They're stealing these Vespas. If I go to this neighborhood, I'm going to catch a bunch of kids driving around on stolen scooters, right? So I go mm-hmm. up there. My partner and I are driving around. We don't see any of these Vespas. So I said, all right, let me, let me, let's park the car. Let's start going into these buildings. And in the basements of these buildings, you have common areas where the super stores, garbage cans, people park motorcycles, bicycles. It's like a little mini storage facility underneath, underneath these buildings. Building by building, my partner and I are talking to these superintendents. And, and the superintendents are taking us to these underground layers. They're proud. They're showing us they're these, like, you know, motorcycles and stuff, but no vestments. The last building we go to, banging on the door, and I can smell marijuana, and I hear laughing. I keep banging on the door. The door opens, and there's this little Spanish guy. He looked like Tattoo from Fantasy Island. He was like five feet tall with jet black hair, mm-hmm. stoned out of his spine. So I said, listen, dude, you mind, could you show me the common area? I'm looking for stolen Vespa motor scooters. And the guy is shaking, just shit, like intimidated, scared. And I'm like, is everything all right? He's like, yeah, 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 let me, let me get the keys. So he gets the keys, and he leads us to this, this big room, and there's this big padlock uh, across these, like, can't explain what it was. It was like these sliding doors. He open, And he drops the keys. He's like a nervous wreck. And I'm like, what, what is the matter with this guy? He, he opens up, the, he takes the, the asp and the key off. He opens up this door. He turns on the light. And I kid you not, there must have been 50 to 100 chickens and roosters running around the floor. Oh and I'm like, oh, God. I go, I know what this is. This is like a cockfight gladiator school, right? And then stacked up on the walls is like another hundred birds. I'm guessing those are like the aggressive fighting cocks that he had up against the wall. So you got about 200 birds in here, right? And he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and all I can think of is Lieutenant saying, stick to auto crime, right? So I go, I, I want to put him at ease. I go, um, no Vespas, no motorcycles? He goes, no. I said, okay. And he goes, it's okay? Like, like surprised. I go, yeah, I don't care. And he goes, Okay. 
and he locks <laughs> it up. My partner and I get back to the car, I get on the phone, and I tell my sergeant, I go, listen to me, get the cavalry here. I just walked into a cockfighting gladiator school. I go, we're going to make a ton of overtime. I'm going to call the ASPCA. He goes, what did the lieutenant tell you? I said, he told me to stick to autocrom. I go, but Sarge, I go, this, this is going to be big. He goes, lieutenant left for the day. He goes, call the ASPCA. I said, are you sure? He goes, yeah. So I call the ASPCA, and I don't know if you remember, there was a television show called Animal Precinct on Animal Planet. It was about the ASPCA police rescuing animals. Well, I get one of the guys from the show on the phone, and I tell him about it. He goes, oh, my God, I can't believe. He goes, are you sure? Like, he couldn't believe what I saw. And I go, yeah, there's like at least 100 birds. He goes, all right, I'll tell you what. He says, we're going to look into this. He goes, I'll call you. I said, all right, no problem. I never expected to hear back from this guy. About two, three weeks later, I took a couple of days off. I was helping my dad install a fence in his backyard. This guy, true to his word, the guy calls me up. He goes, listen, we've got a search warrant for that place. He goes, we're going to hit it first thing in the morning tomorrow. If you want to make some overtime and get, like, you know, a little publicity with this, he goes, you should come. And I go, nah. He says, my sergeant and lieutenant told me to stick to auto crime, and I'm helping my dad put in a fence, right? So uh-huh. a day or two later, it's all over the it's, – it's on the front page of the, of the Post and the Daily News. Largest cockfighting ring in New York City broken up by the ASPCA police, right? I go into work, and my sergeant goes, was this the thing you were telling me about? I said, yeah. He goes and tells my lieutenant. My lieutenant blows a gasket. My lieutenant was a great guy, but he was a publicity hound. He was one of these guys. He always had his nose against the glass trying to get in. Like, he would throw himself in front of a train to get in front of a press conference. And he goes wait a minute, but my lieutenant goes, why did you tell me this about? I go, you told me to stick to auto crime. So, yeah, I actually was involved in breaking up the largest cockfighting ring in New York City, and I had nothing to do with it because I didn't show up to a press conference or the raid. So that's a story from oh, my, my book, goodness. NYPD Law Disorder. That is so cute. All right, I have one more question. Someone, they messaged it to me. And I can see why they don't want to ask this in person on the phone because we're going to laugh at them. They said, have you ever had a paranormal emergency, like when a first responder has to go to respond for ghosts or Bigfoots? That is a real question, not my question. Um, First of all, if there there are UFOs, they're not coming to the Bronx. (laughs) 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 They're not. no, I've got a lot of funny morgue stories, and, and, and I, I knew a cop who I didn't particularly like moved a dead body to get out of working overtime. But no, no paranormal or ghost stories. No ghosts. Any psychics coming around telling you, like, where to find the body, but they really hid it themselves? No, think crazy. So in you the know, old days, no, no, well, I got one thing about psychics. Um in the old days before, you know, before iPhones, right, and, and laptops, the old-time detectives, you would go to the second floor in a detective squad, and on the wall, um, there'd be hundreds of phone numbers, JFK Airport, um, Customs, anybody in law enforcement, anybody that could help you with a case, their phone number was on that wall. And I remember one time being in a detective squad, and I saw a psychic. And I said, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> so I asked one of the old-time detectives, I go, do you guys really call psychics? He goes, here's the thing. He goes, that's one of those things where he goes, it's the last ditch effort. You've got no leads of a missing person or something. He goes, because if, if you call this person, right, 
and you get involved with a psychic, you got to you got to prepare a DD five form that you spoke to. It's, it's a police form that basically who, what, where, when, why on such and such a time. I contacted a psychic. He goes, if it turns up that there's going to be an arrest with this thing, he goes, the defense attorney is going to have a field day. That at some point you call the psychic. So he says, do we call them? Not really. He says, but we keep the fun. It's almost like someone that's not really religious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we'll pray every now mm-hmm. and then. Like, well, maybe maybe I should. But I did see a phone number for a psychic and a detective squad one. Oh, my goodness. That's so funny. Reverend Ralph, did you have any last-minute questions? We just have a few minutes left with Vic. No, not at this time. I was listening very uh, closely to what he was saying. This has been so much fun. I'm getting messages. Not everybody can even get through to get the calls in. Um, Just so everyone knows, this does go out on Spotify, iTunes, and all those other platforms within one minute of the show ending, which we end in about six minutes. Vic, do you have one more fun story, a short one? What would you like to hear? You gotta, you gotta point me in a direction. Um, I gotta point you. Okay. 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 All right. I got a story. I got a. I got a story. Okay. So in the NYPD, when you're in the police academy, they want you to be exposed to death before. They don't want you to go to pieces when you're in the scene of a homicide. So yeah. they're taking 50 of us at a time and bringing us to Bellevue for the morgue. So we're down in the morgue, mm-hmm. and I thought it was going to be like an episode of Quincy where there'd be one slab and one you know technician working on a dead body. Uh-uh. It yeah. was like a jiffy lube. There was like eight bays, eight slabs, and, I mean, they were cutting. And you had multiple Ooh. people working on autopsies. Between each slab was produce scales. I don't know if you remember the old days, like if your mother was going to buy a head of lettuce, you would weigh it. Mm-hmm. And they're pulling out yep. organs and weighing these things. And a couple of people passed out. And at the far end, I'll never forget, it was all the way to the right, there was some kid that was hogtied, like duct tape, shot multiple times. The medical examiner has is, is got this tool that looked like a, uh, a needle nose. And he's pulling slugs out of this kid's back, and he's dumping it in a bucket, and he's making notations on a piece of paper, and he's reading into a tape recorder. And there's this old-time homicide detective eating an egg McMuffin and drinking a coffee, standing over the medical examiner's shoulder. And the detective asked the medical examiner, he goes, what do you think? And he goes, suspicious suicide. And everybody started laughing. And I couldn't believe the humor in the morgue. So... You know, you never yeah. know in the NYPD what you're going to run into. Wow. Well, I'm excited to get all the books. And are they long books or short books? Like how fast can you get through a book, like if you're going to read one? They're quick reads. They're quick reads. If you go to Amazon and just type in my name, Vic, Ferrari Like the Car, my book library will come up. I've got six books. They're all funny. There's no beginning, middle, end. They're all just a chapter with short stories. So for argument's sake, one of my books, I have a chapter called Crossing Over to the Dark Side. That deals with practical, um, with cops that went bad and police corruption. And another chapter would be um, Practical Jokers, the practical jokes that cops play on each other in the station house. Um, my book Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division, is loaded with everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry. Who steals your car? What happens to your car? Uh, how they chop it, um, how much the parts go for. There's a chapter in there on how to prevent getting your car stolen and how to protect yourself from purchasing a stolen or rebuilt car. So, And all my books are paperback. They're between 200 and 225 pages. They're 10 bucks or $2.99 $2. ebook download on Amazon. 
Oh, my gosh, that sounds awesome. I think all of us for sure need to get the Grand Theft Auto one so that we can find out what what to do to not have our car stolen. Do you Real quick car thing, is it better to have a really nice car or a piece of junk car that works good? A junk car is easy like, to steal. Oh, A junk car okay. usually doesn't have a really good ignition. It's either a plastic or a cheap metal ignition. So, and this is mm-hmm. pre-key fob, so kids, kids will steal it or drug addicts will steal it because it's the only car they steal. If you've got a nicer car, here comes the professional. So it's kind of a toss-up. Oh, and I, I, what I want to tell you is if, if you get a chance or we talk off air, give Peter Falk, if you could get Peter Falk's daughter to get in touch with me, i got a really funny story about her dad. I can go into more detail. I absolutely can do that. She loves hearing stories about her father. She, she will love that. And it looks like we're down to a minute. I'm just going to thank our sponsors really quick. First off, thank you so much, Vic, for coming on. I think this has just been everyone's loving it. I'm getting already getting so many wonderful comments. Maybe we'll, you'll be able to come back again, and maybe I can uh, talk Catherine to come on the show. Our um, shows absolutely. are brought to you by Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit. We're also brought to you by the National Association to Stop Guardianship Abuse, ASCA, which is the Australian Association to Stop Guardianship Abuse and Administration Abuse and Shenanigans in the Montgomery County Facebook page. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and have a wonderful night. Thank you so much, Vic and Reverend Ralph. We'll talk to you, everyone, soon. Good night.